JBS presents the Hampton Synagogue's Author Discussion Series with Rabbi Avraham Bronstein. My name is Glenn Dorskin. Welcome to the Hampton Synagogue. The Hampton Synagogue Author Discussion Series, now in its 27th year, is a cultural highlight of our summer season, both from members of our congregation and our many visitors from across the Hamptons. I am proud to serve as series chair, and it is my great pleasure to share our past season with you, our global congregation, in celebration of Jewish Book Month. especially for um, to discuss this book. We were just discussing before the difference between fiction and nonfiction, or what was fiction or not. This is obviously, it's a nonfiction book, it's a biography, but it's incredible when you read it, how much of a real, how much of a, how much of a narrative there is. There's a real momentum to it, there's a pacing to it. It feels like you're reading a novel because the story is told so vividly and with such force. So um, thank you for being here, and I can't wait to discuss it with you. Well, thanks. I sure aspire to that, so I'm glad to hear those words very much. And uh, I've been asked to read <clears throat> a, a short passage, which I will, and I just want to set it up for you a bit, contextualize it. As you already heard in the wonderful introduction, for which I'm so grateful, the book is primarily <clears throat> about Humphrey's political life and the life of his allies and adversaries in the decade of the 1940s. And it's a decade when very much because of World War II, there are these parallel struggles against racism and against anti-Semitism. And the question that America is asking, having fought against fascism abroad, is what are we going to do about the intolerance in our own country? And when Humphrey becomes active in public life in Minneapolis and ultimately becomes mayor, he takes on these issues. And for him, the battles against racism and anti-Semitism are always in sync. And the, um, the laws that he put through for fair employment and against restrictive covenants and housing in Minneapolis affected both blacks and Jews, as well as, for that matter, Catholics and Japanese Americans. And his big triumph in 1948 at the Democratic Convention to get the Democrats to fully embrace civil rights for the first time. If you actually read the plank, that was adopted by the delegates, it explicitly addresses discrimination not only on the basis of race, but also religion and national origin. So this was hugely important for American Jewry as well. But to take on <clears throat> these stances in the 1940s meant that you were at some risk, actually. They might look like safe political positions from the standpoint of 2023, or perhaps not, considering the upsurge of anti-Semitism, but definitely at that time, it made you vulnerable. And I'm going to read a little part that I think even many of you who know about Humphrey probably don't know about this element of his life. The hate mail and telephone threats began arriving in November 1946, shortly after Hubert Humphrey's first public meetings about a self-survey of bigotry in Minneapolis. 
Along with the letters and phone calls appeal, uh, appeared placards tacked to trees on the University of Minnesota campus. One declared, kill Jews. Another boasted, when they start talking of racial equality, pull the safety catch on your gun. Hail to Minneapolis, capital of anti-Semitism. The posters bore the Sieg rune insignia, a hybrid of lightning bolt and uppercase letter S, which Adolf Hitler has used as the symbol of his Schutzstaffel paramilitary, the SS. The letters came on the stationery from a group called the Democratic Nationalist Party, which stipulated the United States was founded of, by, and for the people of European Caucasian descent only. As for Mayor Humphrey, it said, if you oppose us and serve as a tool of the Jewish communist interests, we will promise you here and now that on the day of judgment, our day of victory, you will meet your retribution. On the evening of Thursday, February 6th, Humphrey was ending a typically hectic day of his mayoralty. He attended a meeting of the Charter Commission. He added five professors from the University of Minnesota to the self-survey's research team. He split the evening between an American Federation of Labor dinner at the Radisson Hotel honoring local teachers and a banquet at the municipal auditorium for the start of Boy Scout anniversary week. As midnight neared, Humphrey rode toward his home with several aldermen in a police car piloted by his regular driver, Officer Vern Bartholomew, who was packing a 38. Normally, Bartholomew walked Humphrey to the front door just to ensure that the mayor got inside safely. But it was miserable outdoors, even by Minneapolis standards. Below zero, a furious northwest wind, imminent snow. And Humphrey told Bartholomew to stay at the wheel and take the other passengers to their homes. Oddly, the nearest streetlight to Humphrey's house was out. The moon, more than half full, was blotted out by storm clouds and the only available light seeped from a glass panel in the front door. Humphrey hunched over the lock and squinted at the keyhole, chilled fingers trying to guide the key. Hearing him at the door, his wife Muriel opened it from the inside. Then, either from a stand of shrubbery or the side yard, a bullet whizzed past, followed by two more, clinking into the siding as they struck wide of their target. Humphrey ducked into the entry hall, blurting out, why would anyone shoot me? Then he and Muriel tried to piece together the sequence of events. Humphrey rummaged through the bushes looking for the spent shells. Muriel recalled having heard the gunshots and assuming the sound was a car backfiring. And there was one more thing. Just before the noise, the family's pet dog Tippy had barked at something. It seemed possible in retrospect that the canine alarm had rattled the would-be assassin just enough to make him miss. Now, Humphrey manages in a way that's impossible now to keep word of the assassination out of the newspapers for six weeks. But finally, on March 18th, news broke of the assassination attempt. With the Minneapolis Tribune running the banner headline, three shots fired at Humphrey. Even then, Humphrey refused to confirm the attack on the record. The article attributed the details, all of them factually accurate, to a, quote, informant. Whatever public sympathy for Humphrey the story may have stimulated, it also compelled his unknown assailant to describe his crime through disinformation. The day after the Tribune article, 
a letter reached Humphrey at City Hall. It said the mayor's life was still in danger and pointed an, accusing, an accusatory finger at Jewish mobsters downtown. The same correspondent wrote to Muriel Humphrey at home a few days later. Very cunningly, compared with the impeccable grammar and lexicon in the letter from the Democratic Nationalist Party, this one adopted an ignorant affect. Tell your husband to be very careful. I work for a Jewish family. I overheard a conversation in another room. There was no name mentioned, but I know it was sent for him. Four big Jews gonna pay $5,000 to bump somebody off. It's about gambling. They don't make enough money. Keep this out of the papers. The papers is a Jew outfit that the Jews do anything for. Money, where there's money, then there's Jews and murder and crime. They control everything. This is from a real friend. <coughs> and ultimately, they find that the person who was sending those letters and who was putting up the hateful placards around the university campus was a war veteran named Maynard Orlando Nelson. And the police go into his house, they arrest him. Interestingly, Humphrey never brings charges. I don't think Humphrey wanted to give him the public spectacle of a trial. But I'll just close with this paragraph. In the process of breaking into Nelson, of, rather of going into Nelson's home, the police found a German, a German Luger, a 38 caliber pistol, bullets, a blackjack, and a pocket knife. They also found posters, pamphlets, and a logo stamp from the Democratic Nationalist Party. And they found letters to Nelson from Mississippi Congressman J.E. Rankin, one of the most outspoken bigots in Congress, and a copy of the conspiratorial book, The Red Network, by Elizabeth Dillig, who had been tried for sedition as a Nazi sympathizer. From arms to ideology, to propaganda, Nelson possessed the complete toolkit of a terrorist. Thank you so much. Um, just general question, how did this book come about? What inspired you to take on Hubert Humphrey as a project? I had been looking for a number of years for a book that was set in the late 1940s. I felt like there was this gap between a lot of books that involved World War II and then in terms of civil rights, a lot of books that began with the mid-1950s with Brown versus Board of Ed and Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the Montgomery Bus Boycott. But there seemed to be this gap in between and I couldn't find the right topic. I was always looking with part of my brain. And to be perfectly honest, a good friend of mine, a historian named Julian Zelzer, had a book come out in early 2015 about how Lyndon Johnson pushed through the Great Society legislation in the mid-60s. And my wife and I went to the book launch. And my wife had lived in Minnesota for about 25 years during her first marriage. And being a good former Minnesotan, asked Julian, well, what about Hubert Humphrey? And in the course of answering the question, Julian mentioned Humphrey's bright sunshine speech at the 1948 convention and what an overlooked landmark in civil rights history it was. And I knew about that speech. But something about Julian saying it just made the proverbial light bulb go off. And so the next morning, I did two things. I emailed Julian to make sure he wasn't planning on doing the book, which he wasn't. And I went on Amazon to make sure there was no similar book already out there. And then there was full speed ahead eight and a half years ago. So then you partially answered the next question, which was how long did the project take? It took eight and a half eight years. Eight and a half years. How do you go about researching um, the early life of somebody with such a large public profile later on in his life? 
Well, fortunately, Hubert Humphrey was a real pack rat, and he saved so many things, and uh, either late in his life or after his death, his, um, the body of his public papers, and most interestingly, his personal and family papers were given to the State Historical Society in Minnesota, which did this incredible job of organizing them. So I delved really into the archival holdings very much and spent, you know, several years of my research time was spent doing nothing but reading those papers. You know, the great magisterial biographer of Lyndon Johnson, Robert Caro, has this phrase, turn every page. I cannot claim that I turned every page, but I turned a lot of pages. And that was the beginning of, of my research was to really get to know Humphrey. And particularly if you are talking about the early life, there are amazing letters involving him and his father, him and his younger sister, he and his girlfriend who will become his wife, Muriel, and a great advantage to writing biography of someone who lived at that time is that there was mail delivery twice a day back in the 1930s and the 1920s. And if people were separated, if Humphrey was writing to Muriel when she was working her summer job at a little, you know, tatty little resort her family was trying to run in the Depression, and Humphrey's working at the family drugstore 150 miles away, they'd be writing to each other twice a day. And all of that was preserved. And so it was an amazing ability to kind of get into his head with you know, total historical credibility at that time. Wow. Um, did you have a certain sense of who Hubert Humphrey was before you started this project? And over the course of doing eight and a half years of research and writing, did that perspective change? It, uh, great question, and it changed a lot. You know, I'm almost 68, so my memories of Hubert Humphrey are primarily from the period of his political career when his star really fell. I remember, you know, he and Lyndon Johnson being pilloried by liberals like my parents for supporting the Vietnam War. I remember a few months shy of age 13 watching him get the nomination amid the violence of the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 68. I remember heading into college, the kind of pathetic spectacle of him trying to run against George McGovern for the nomination in 1972 and losing. And that's a lot of the collective memory of Humphrey that has uh, lasted these decades, and it's not that it's wrong, but it's so incomplete. And I think I was more intrigued than I was actually knowledgeable about this earlier part of his life, but a, a good friend of mine, fellow prof at Columbia, Michael Shapiro, always says that a book has to be driven by a question. And the question that this book was driven by is why does this very white guy from this very white Christian place care so much about Jews and blacks? And that was really the question I said often in search of an answer to, or answers to. And in trying to come up with the answers, that's where not only my knowledge of Humphrey's earlier life and earlier career was expanded, but my admiration for him just grew tremendously when I saw you know, how idealistic, but also very smartly pragmatic he was, how many risks, including with his own life, he was willing to take um, how empathetic he was. I know we'll talk about some of this later, but there's, there's a whole part of his encounters with German Jewish refugees and with Holocaust survivors that's incredible. And that just really speaks to 
you know, to his soul and, and to his kishkas. So all that was information that I built up gradually, again, over those eight and a half years. Right. So you had mentioned um, earlier, um, just the, the reading that you did, was a particular incident in his life, this assassination attempt that took place when he was still the mayor of Minnesota before anybody had really heard of him on, a, on the national scale. Um, was there any other, or maybe a few other, like really either incidents or character traits or things about him and his context that really took you aback, that really forced you to change your perspective on him over the course of writing? Well, one of the biggest surprises to me was to find out that the year that really altered his life and made him the person we came to know was one year he spent in, of all places, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, going to get a master's degree at Louisiana State. And Humphrey goes there in the fall or late summer of 1939. He's lived his entire life either in Minnesota or South Dakota, and a couple months in Denver going to pharmacy school prior to that. And his college career had been disrupted for five years because his family lost their home, lost their business, and he went back to South Dakota to try to help. So by the time he finished up even his bachelor's degree, he's already married with a baby on the way, and he's just trying to like catch up and finally at age 27 graduate uh, from college at the University of Minnesota. And the only reason he goes down to LSU is they offer him 400 bucks to be a graduate assistant, and he and Muriel and their newborn Nancy, they need the $400 really badly. But what that year does, and it's overlooked in almost everything that's written about Humphrey, and even in his own memoir, he gives it very short shrift. But in that, he goes down there as someone who's a big Franklin Roosevelt supporter and a new dealer, but he's had no particular orientation towards taking on issues of bigotry against Jews and blacks and others. He's been kind of actually oblivious to those issues up to that point. He goes down to Baton Rouge, and three things happen within that one year. Number one, he lives in a Jim Crow society for the first time. He sees what racism is like in action, what an American apartheid system consists of. And he's appalled by it. Um, you know, to see, to cite one example, a black pedestrian who's just crossing the street too slowly for the satisfaction of a white motorist who just gets out of his car and starts reviling him with the N-word, just a complete humiliation and degradation. Those kind of things stay with Humphrey. The second thing, and it's not so surprising there'd be a big black community in Baton Rouge, but it is surprising that it's in Baton Rouge of all places where Humphrey makes Jewish friends for the first time. And one of his teammates on the debate team is a law student named Alvin Rubin, who will actually ultimately become a federal judge who will hand down some really important desegregation rulings in the 1960s and 70s. But Rubin is his buddy and his debate teammate. And Alvin Rubin has five uncles who are trapped in the Nazi-controlled part of Europe and talks to Humphrey about this. All these uncles will ultimately be exterminated. And this, at a time when America is still very isolationist um, and even overtly pro-Nazi in many quarters, this is Humphrey's first really tactile personalized understanding of what we'll come to know as the Shoah. And again, it really affects him for the rest of his life. And the last thing that happens at LSU is Humphrey takes a year-long seminar with an amazing professor named Rudolf Eberly. And Eberly is a one-eighth Jewish anti-Nazi sociology professor from Germany who was tormented 
by seeing Germany within literally the space of two or three years go from being a democracy to a dictatorship. And he'd begun to do sociological fieldwork to try to answer this question of how could this possibly happen? And because that work was so controversial under the Hitler regime, and because he had to report his Jewish ancestry, um, he's stripped of his academic position. He's sent into exile, penniless, and with his family scrambling to find a job and a place to live, and he ends up with this job at LSU. And when he teaches the seminar, he does three things in it. Number one, he talks about his fieldwork, his scholarly work on how democracies become dictatorships. Number two, he talks about his family's own experience of dispossession and you know, being refugees. And number three, he explicitly draws parallels between the oppression of Jews in Nazi Germany and the oppression of blacks in the Jim Crow South. And all of this has a huge effect on Humphrey. So I think it was a big surprise for me to realize that this one year in this very unlikely place of Baton Rouge was going to be so decisive in the person Humphrey became. So if running for mayor on a platform of fighting against racism and anti-Semitism didn't make electoral sense, but he kind of found the way to make it work, even though maybe that was a political disadvantage for him, if you think about it just strictly, that's basically the same thing he was doing in 1948 in his convention speech, right? Doing the exact same thing, Absolutely. pushing for civil rights, knowing that he was going to split the Democratic Party basically in half. Exactly. I mean, the 1948 Democratic Convention, um, Harry Truman is going to be nominated to run for a full term. That's a given. But the big battle that's looming is about civil rights. And it, with all due respect to Franklin Roosevelt for the New Deal, Roosevelt had made this devil's bargain with the Southern segregationist wing of the Democratic Party. He needed their votes on Election Day to get their electoral votes to win the White House. He needed the support of these very senior, powerful Southern Democrats in the Senate and the House to get his New Deal legislation through. And so his kind of corrupt bargain with them was to allow New Deal programs to be sometimes written and always implemented in ways that were racially unequal in the South and never to have any language in the Democratic platform endorsing um, equal rights racially and religiously for that matter as well, even though Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, was constantly urging him in that direction. After the speech, what, what he was scared of happening happened, right? The Democratic Party broke up. Strom Thurmond ran for president as a Dixiecrat, and Truman still won. Exactly. So, right, so the question then is, right, and this is maybe a larger question, was Humphrey kind of riding a wave that he wasn't really sure existed but turned out was there? Or just from the power of persuasion, was he really one of those pivotal figures that changed the course of history? I don't think Humphrey knew he was going to succeed by any means. The way it worked out, he gives the speech. It's the afternoon of July 14th. And there are 1,500 delegates including alternates, there are only 17 blacks. So you're not gonna win this on black votes. You're trying to convince you know, a 99.9% white set of delegates to, again, defy their president, risk a Southern walkout by coming out for civil rights, which even FDR had never asked them to do. And when you listen to the audio of Humphrey giving the speech, and you can Google it on YouTube, you can hear the audio, it's amazing. You can hear all the boos. He gets some cheers, but there's a lot of booing. 
And there's such an uproar after he speaks, the Southerners are just indignant, right? That, they, um, that the convention is actually halted for a couple of hours to try to let tempers cool. And until it reassembles later into the late afternoon, early evening, there isn't a vote taken yet on the civil rights plank. So Humphrey doesn't even know whether he's gonna win or lose on it for another, for another couple of hours. And it wins decisively, but it's close enough that I think in the roll call of the states, it had to get to Wisconsin before they hit the 50% mark. And so I think he didn't know that he was riding this wave, um, which I think speaks even better for him because he was willing to put everything, to put his entire career at risk um, on behalf of this principle that was important to him. And remember, this isn't a rich guy. If he had you know, lost his political career as a result of this, if the Democratic Party had pulled its support for him running for Senate, for instance, like you took on Truman, we told you not to do it, so we're not gonna really lend you support running for the Senate. He basically was living kind of hand to mouth. What, you know, his whole income was his salary as mayor. He wasn't from a rich family. He wasn't gonna go and be a lawyer or a lobbyist. He was gonna have to you know, scuffle around just to pay the mortgage again. Do you think that there's a particular lesson or a particular um, resonance to Humphrey uh, today in America in 2023 that makes his life and his example particularly relevant and important? I think there are a couple of real important lessons. No, number one is Humphrey combined idealism with pragmatism. He had a real moral vision, and in fact, part of it was his religious faith, and he was extremely influenced by the social justice prophets um, of the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, but the other part is he knew that you have to have practical political skills. He was a great coalition builder. He could figure out what do you need to do to move public opinion to put pressure on lawmakers who are going to be timid and um, won't move forward boldly on legislation otherwise unless they feel like their constituents are breathing down their neck. So he was very skillful at those things. He wasn't interested in loyalty tests from the people in this coalition. So he was interested in people who might disagree on a bunch of other issues, but could come together on whatever the issue is, whether it's a fair employment law or police reform or what have you. So I think that's one of his lessons. I think another important lesson is he didn't see sort of the traditional class-based you know, economics of New Deal liberalism being at odds with directly taking on forms of discrimination, he, you know, what would now be called identity politics. He didn't see those as opposites. He saw them as things that had to be merged, and you had to work on both of those fronts simultaneously. And the other thing is that the, when I think about the battles he had against groups like the Silver Shirts and people like Gerald L. K. Smith and the Democratic Nationalist Party, um, William Bell Riley, um, he was fighting the same battle that's going on now, which is this battle of uh, a, an inclusive, interfaith, multiracial form of democracy against forms of autocracy that, in his time as well as now, used terms like Christian nationalism, America firstism, white supremacy. And what I say when I get this question, which I do sometimes, is that the fact that the battle has reemerged doesn't mean Humphrey failed, but it means that sometimes you have to refight this battle 
periodically and um, victory isn't a permanent thing. Look, as Jewish people, how many of us thought we'd look at a massacre at Tree of Life? How many thought of us thought we were gonna look at the Unite the Right rally? And yet here we are presented with it and you can either say it's hopeless and fall into despair and paralysis, or you can say this is our time to take up that fight once again. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you.